Today we're looking at James chapter 2 verse 1 to 7. The title of today's sermon is True Faith is Impartial. True Faith is Impartial. I'll read verse 1 to 7 again. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honourable name by which you were called? See, previously we have seen, we looked at in chapter 1 about our speech as true believers of God. And what that does, uh, where, where does that come from? It comes from a heart that surrendered to Jesus. And that we spoke about how out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And it's amazing that um, often when you get into, you, you meet your spouse, maybe for the first few months, you, you can pretend, you know, the things that you say, the things that uh, you don't communicate, you, you can hold back to a certain degree, but actually your true self will reveal itself uh, within three to six months. You can only pretend for a period of time. The same thing when you go into a new place of work, what's inside will surely come out. You can pretend for a while, you can talk you know, and be really quiet, but eventually your true self will come out, right? And then we looked at the tr- what true religion is. James talks about what true li- religion entails. It's the outward demonstration of a compassionate heart, a heart that is yielded and showing Christ to the poor, to the needy, to the vulnerable in the society. And then furthermore, that we're commanded to be unstained from the world, to keep ourselves unstained, don't be polluted by the things that are going on around. We are ch- the church, the called ones. We must keep ourselves unstained from the world. So today we are considering partiality as a test of our faith. We've looked at various different tests. James talked about the test of, of, uh, of trials, of temptations, the test of money, of wealth, the test of reading God's word and actually being doers of God's word. Now we're looking at a test of partiality. See, we have all been guilty at some point in our lives of being partial. No one is exempt at all. We've been there. See, the whole world makes decisions based on partiality and based on things, you know, that one way or another, you look, "Mm, why did that person make that decision? What were they thinking? See, some would say that uh, I like to drive everywhere, right? I'm not really a fan of public transport. So you could say in one way that I'm, I'm partial to my car, right? Um, but I've just been one of those people anyway on, on public transports, not to want to touch anything. Um, or just always this conscious sense of uh, bacteria and viruses everywhere, right? But um, I'm sure we all make decisions, even when we do get on public transports, as, as to, you know, should I sit next to that person? Maybe that person's got a mean face. I don't know. 
But there's always certain things that you look at, you say, oh, maybe I should sit there, or, oh, you know, the youth always sit at the back, so let me sit at the, you know, at the front of the, of the bus, or, you know, we're always gauging things, right? Um, maybe your parents have said that you should befriend certain people. I know my parents certainly have said, you know, stick with those that are um, they're, they're hardworking, they're, they're courageous, they're, they, they listen in class, you know, and those are good things. Some people might say that's partial, but that's a good thing, right? See, those friends actually can influence our lives, so it, that's why it's a good thing. Um, so that's, one could say that's a good way of showing partiality. See, we, we can also show partiality, sadly, based on social status, economic status, employment status. I know certainly it's just like, make sure your friends are the ones that are doctors, the ones that are accountants, you know, you, you hear that growing up. We can make those distinctions sometimes. Sometimes it's a clothing style. No, don't stay with that person because they dress a certain way. Maybe it's the hairstyle. Maybe it's the person's got tattoos. I don't know. So stay away from those people, right? But we can make distinctions sometimes based on race, based on gender, based on age, based on looks, based on what cars people drive. Maybe even the piercing that they have. Oh, that person's got about 10 piercings on one ear. Ooh, I'm not sure about that person. Or maybe when you first meet your spouse, you, you maybe assess them. Can they cook? <laughs> right? Those are things we sometimes distinguish between. And we can, that can be, go a long way between saying yes or no to the person, right? So my point is there's some things that we're prone to every day. We make conscious decisions that sometimes can look partial, right? But today we want to look at the impartiality of faith in Jesus. That true faith is impartial. So let's come back to verse 1 in chapter... Well, before we come back to verse 1, let's look at verse 2 to 7. See, James describes a scenario here. And this is one that's uh, possibly happened, right? So the setting is in an assembly. Assembly in, in, in these times were in a house. You know, the, the, the people went to church in the house, in the fellowship, right? So it's very intimate. So this is around someone's house, and it's, this was customary for early Christians. They met in someone's home. Now here comes a rich man. He walks into this fellowship, this home fellowship. We know he's rich because he's got gold, a gold ring on. And back then, that signified someone that's quite wealth, wealthy. Someone's got money, essentially. And he's coming in. He's wearing his fine clothing. He's, he's looking apart. He's got to walk. He smells nice. And then we see he's got his Sunday's best on, right? He's probably got some perfume that's maybe Old Spice or something. His, his ring is shining. Everything is looking like this guy is the one, right? So he would have been wearing possibly something that was today in comparison, maybe an Armani brand or something like that, something that's very expensive. But then another man comes in into the assembly, a poor man. So what signifies that he's poor? It's the way that he's dressed, the shabby clothing. So we can imagine this person is probably unshaven. I'm unshaven right now, but that's because my, my clippers are broke, right? But um, he, he, he may have looked unkept in his appearance, holes in his clothing. He may have not washed for a few days, a few weeks. So at this point, we see that both are welcomed into the church, into this home group. There's no bounce on the door. There's no security guard. There's no usher saying, no, you can't come in. They're both allowed in. 
But then we see the favoritism that occurs here. See what happens with the rich man versus the, old, the, the, the poor man. See, the rich man with his fine clothing, we see in verse 3, his appearance is valued and honoured. And he's told to sit here, sit in this good place, sit in this front place. This is right, this is, this is where you should be, right? And then he's, he, the other, it, this, this must mean that there's other places within this home group that's maybe not as, as conducive. Maybe it's cold in one corner there, right? There's, there's places there that are not quite um, conducive for, for a, a, a good place to sit. But firstly, he is given this nice, comfortable seat with a great view. Maybe someone's standing in front talking. This, this rich man's got a nice view. But then this poor man with his shabby clothing, as we see in part, th- part B of verse 3, he's given two options. Stand over there. Stand over there where no one will see you, just in that corner there, just right at the back. And then he's get, no attention is, is, is given to him. He's not properly welcomed into the church. Then the second option he's given is that, you know, actually, maybe you can just sit at my feet. Almost like a servant. I think that's good enough for you. Just come and sit here. There's nowhere else we can find for you. Just right here. See, that might be okay for you in, I don't know, primary school in year one. But this man is of value too. He's a human being. So are the children, right? But we do make those distinctions sometimes. You sit here, you over there. No, 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 no. Based on what we see. See, there is a way people should have been welcomed. There should have been great hospitality, love shown to both the rich man and the poor man. Not based on what they were wearing. These people were observing face, observing appearance. You don't expect that from Christians. Nobody knows who we truly are in Christ. What sets them apart from those that were outside of the assembly? That's the same way those two men would have been treated outside and in the church. What was the distinction? See, what is incredible is that the Jewish Christians in this assembly would have had a low economic status themselves apart from the owner of the house. The owner of the house would would have been quite well off. But these people were making distinctions and even based on their own where they were at, it, it didn't compare, it didn't make sense. They were quick to shun the poor man in favour of the rich man. They saw something more worthy, more honourable in this rich man than the poor man. They paid more attention to welcoming the rich man based on his outward appearance. Whilst the, the behaviour towards the poor man was more of a, a rejection rather than embracing, rather than loving, They were not loving at all. They accepted the rich man joyfully but reluctantly welcomed the poor man into the fellowship. They accepted the rich man joyfully but reluctantly welcomed the poor man into the fellowship. How have we shown partiality in the church? Wherever God has placed us, our workplace, in our communities, around us. Where have you shown favouritism? 
See, according to the English dictionary, partiality is an unfair bias in favour of a person or thing. Essentially, it's favouritism. It's the discrimination of an object or concern over another. One person is deemed more lovable, more likeable, more respectable, more intellectual, based on external factors that are, insig- that are not significant. Those factors could be race, gender, looks, wealth, employment, appearance. So we've got two derivatives, favoritism and discrimination. But the Greek word here, it, it denotes partiality as respecter of persons. An acceptance of persons. Here we see a description that, of respecting one person over another because of external factors that are insignificant. See, the same word is used in Romans 2 verse 11. It says, for God shows no partiality. God is not a respecter of persons. God does not look at our faces. God does not look at our appearances. Essentially, he doesn't look at the things that are outside that are insignificant, those things that don't matter. Here we see that um, Romans 2.11 talks about the Jews and Greeks. There is no more Jews and Greeks, right? God doesn't show partiality when he pronounces the judgment. It will be on the Jews and the Greeks, the Jews and the Gentiles. There is no partiality in God's judgment. He does not look our face and what we, our outward appearance, what we're capable of doing, our, our good or our intellect. So let me just draw our attention to the effects of being respecters of persons. See, partiality causes a distinction between those who God has made. We can't miss that in verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Partiality causes distinction between those who God has made. This person is more significant than this person because of insignificant variables. How do we come to those conclusions? Number two, we we make... That verse um, 4 talks about making a judgment based on evil thoughts. When we make distinctions between people because of how they look or the outward appearance or anything that's external and not the heart, it comes from an evil thought. This is back to what we've been talking about. It's about a heart. It's a heart issue here. See, when we look at 1 Peter 1.17, it said God judges impartially. It says, and if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This is after God has said, be holy in your conduct. And he goes on to say, and if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We're exiles here. We're passing through. So if God judges impartially, why should we be judged impartially? See, those who truly call on God as Father can't be partial. Can't be partial in our dealings with human beings. Can't be respectful of people because of what we see, the celebrities and, and the famous people, or because someone is rich or the way they dress or those outward things. 
See, judging with an evil heart is a reflection of a carnal heart. A heart that does not call on God as Father. When we see truly God as our Father, a loving Father, how much he has cared for us, how much he has called us, who have, were nothing, who were dead in our trespasses, then we begin to see how we should glorify him by not being partial to people. See, if we look again in verse 6, it talks about dishonouring. It said, but you have dishonoured the poor man. We have dishonoured God's creation. Favouritism is a dishonouring of God's image bearers. God has created us. God has created humankind. And when we show partiality, we're dishonouring God, first of all, but we're also dishonouring him as us as, as, as his people as image bearers people that bear the image of God see verse 7 goes on to talk, to talk about the honourable name of God so God calls his people chooses his people by his honourable name the name of God signifies his character who he is and that's, he calls us from that understanding his name speaks of his character God's call for salvation is to reveal his honourable and glorious character, a sovereign creator. If God has created all things, God has created us as his, in his own image, we can't be partial. We can't be respectful of people. We can't look at people's faces and judge them based on that. So you can honour someone without showing favouritism. When you give honour someone honour, you're giving them what is due to them, right? Their worth as image bearers of God. And really what we're doing is loving God and loving people as we love ourselves. That's what that means. See, the person who is partial is not able to discern the evil the person they're showing favour to, favouritism to is performing. We can't miss that in verse 6 and 7. See, he says, are, are not the rich... The ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honourable name by which you were called? These rich people were the ones that were oppressing them, keeping back their, their wages, the wages that they deserved, not paying them on time. These people couldn't see the, even the evils, that, and that's what favouritism does. The, the very things that people are doing wrong, the, the, the evil that they do, you're able to just lower your standards to a certain stage that you, you, you don't see those evils anymore. You just see their face. You just see what they're about. You can see what's bling. You see the ring. But you're not looking at the heart. See, it's so easy to overlook the sins and evil of those who, show, who we show favouritism to. We do not hold them to account to the same high standards as we hold other people. So these rich people, like we said, were typed to take these ones to court, knowing full well they couldn't pay. And these people were the type of people that were blaspheming the name of God, the name of God, the character of God, who God is. Yet they could show favoritism to them. See, James' address to these Jewish Christians was direct. Let's go back to verse 1. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the Lord of glory. This is the clear principle right from the get-go. Before God asks us to obey a commandment, he first reveals his character. He first reveals who he is. Before he tells us to walk in a certain way, to live a certain lifestyle, to be set apart, God reveals who he is to us, first of all. God's, character, God's commands of us lay rooted in his revealed character. So let's look at a reason why, the reasons why we must not be respectful of persons, why we must show no partiality. See, James says in verse 1, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. See, the faith on one hand, we can't hold faith in one hand and partiality in the other hand. The two don't mix. It's like oil and water. Chalk and cheese, they don't mix. A believer's faith in Jesus cannot be held in one hand and partiality, partiality in another hand. A person trusting in Jesus does not continue, a person trusting in Jesus does not continue to be a respecter of persons, does not continue to show partiality to others. See, we are so easily struck by celebrities and dignitaries. If Dave Bacon walked into here right now, our minds will already be thinking after the service, I need to have a chat with him. I need to see, wow, Dave Beckham in church? I need to speak to him, see how his family is. You know, but if someone new comes to the church, how do we treat them? Are we quick to go and say, hey, bro, sis, welcome to our midst. How service? What are you about? See, this is what James is describing. Being partial in this context of the, being partial in the context of this passage and the Bible is choosing to favour someone not for any good reason other than external profiling. See, in a job interview context, the, the role of the organisation would be to hire the best person, right? The one that fits the role of the job. If a person interviews well, is qualified for the role and has the necessary skills to thrive, well, they should get the job, Right? See, favouritism would be the person getting the job because they, they bribed the interviewer. Or maybe they got the job because they knew someone within that position. That would be favouritism, right? See, external factors that really had nothing to do with the person's credentials. See, if we think of an old-fashioned um, scale with two sides, our faith must outweigh we can't be partial. We need to respect and be in awe of the living God, not be respect to our persons. See, human eyes looks at the externals, but not the heart. God looks at the heart. God chooses people looking at the heart. And he chooses way before. He's not even about what we do. God chooses because of his will. See, previously in verse 27, it, it talks about religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's verse 27, chapter 1. See, James writes to these Jewish Christians and to us about having a compassionate heart to the poor and needy, the widows and orphans, to consider others in their afflictions and their distress. Taking the spotlight off ourselves, shining on someone else. Thinking of someone more highly than ourselves. We're encouraged to think of them more. 
And James is now stressing the point even further here by emphasising the interactions as Christians with others. There must be no partiality, no favouritism over one person or another based on external variables. We must not be respectful of persons based on outward appearance. So holding faith in Jesus should put to death any form of partiality of social status, status, economic status, education, dress style, whether someone's handsome or not, gorgeous or not. See, there is a, a sense here in verse, in verse 1 of, of chapter 2 that holding on to Jesus, trusting in Jesus, beholding Jesus, Jesus that has embraced us, has warmed us by the gospel in time, chosen us before, but in time he has warmed us to the good news. We have been given a heart submitted. That's what the holding is, the holding onto that faith. There can't be no partiality. When you're holding on to Jesus, you can't be a respective persons. This holding of the faith is referring to someone who's walking with Jesus. Step by step, growing in the knowledge of Jesus. They're growing to understand the true worth of Jesus as the most glorious. They're ready to stick with Jesus when the world is calling. When things are enticing. When things are tugging at you. Things are pulling at you. We cannot be respectful persons when our Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest example of humility, of impartiality, as he rules over our lives. If we are truly following Jesus, then we will show partiality or favoritism to no one. Because he himself is a respecter of no persons. He is not a respecter of persons at all. See, there was a time in, in Luke 20, 21, where the chief priests, they sent out spies to, almost to, to bring down Jesus, right? They wanted him to say something that they can then hold on to. But even they realised something. They said this in Luke 20, 21. They said, so they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Jesus himself is impartial. We, we know this. How do we know this? Let's look again in verse 1 in, of, of, of James 2. This faith that we're talking about is a belief and trust. It's a, a belief and trust in Jesus. We're believing in the nature and the work of Jesus Christ for us. We're trusting him as Lord and Saviour over our lives. He's ruler, he reigns. If we truly are submitted to him, then we have faith and we hold on to that. This faith isn't Jesus alone. This faith isn't no one else but the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the object of our faith. He's the Lord that is presiding over us, the rules and reigns. His authority is what's sufficient and is keeping us. His authority is what holds us. He's Jesus, Yahweh, Saviour. He has come. God has sent a Saviour to save his people. He is Christ, the Anointed One. He has been bestowed all glory, all power, all adoration, all majesty has been placed upon him. A Christian cannot hold their faith in Jesus and yet be partial with people. Jesus did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, death on the cross for me and for you. There is truly no comparison. But if we are to compare 
what Jesus has done. Could you imagine someone like Bessos, the owner of Amazon, with all his riches, with all that he has, coming to be a servant for someone? Can we imagine that? And worse yet, if that person that you're serving is an enemy of yours. This is what Jesus did. He laid aside his glory. He's still the glorious one. He didn't, he, he, didn't, he didn't put it away. He lay aside, right? He was born to poor, very poor parents. His earthly father was a carpenter. You would have thought that he would have come to, to live with a wealthy family, to be born as a child to the, wealth, the most richest family at that time. His birth location was underwhelming. You would have expected somewhere like the Hilton or Marriott or somewhere. But in fact, even the, his lineage, where his genealogy, the people that were along the way, not very noble, not very great. See, when we, God's Son Himself, He came to be a servant for us who are filthy, sin stained people. He came to die for us. He chose us as His people to love. He chose to love us. He came for the poor, came for the weak. He came for little children. He came for the widows. He came for the lost sheep. If he was a respecter of persons, would he have come for sinners like us? See, Jesus did this and infinitely more. He did so, 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 so much more for us. He lived a perfect life. The life that we could never live. He died the death that we deserve. The death that we deserve for our sins. The way we, we have lived, the way we live and we continue to live. We sin, we sin every day, but he died for that all. Once and for all. So he gave, he gave himself and guaranteed us a new life. By resurrecting from the dead. If we truly believe and trust in Jesus, if he's truly Lord over our lives then we can't be partial to men or, or women. We can't be partial to men. See, verse 1 goes on to further to say, it's almost like a repetition. First it says, faith in our Lord Jesus. Then he says, the Lord of glory. See, this faith is in the Lord of glory. James is emphasising this, that Jesus is the Lord of glory. What does this mean? It means that this is Jesus who descended and dwelt with his people. He was crucified, killed on the cross, buried in Joseph's tomb, resurrected on the third day. Then he ascended. He ascended into heaven, his glorified body. You, the marks were still there. The nails that went through his hands, and his, it was still there. But he ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of God. He is the glorious one. See, when he was on earth, Isaiah talks about there was nothing that looked great about him, nothing that looked beautiful. Nothing about him was desirable in his physical appearance. But this Jesus is the one that's ascended on high. This Jesus has died for me and you and now has ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's using the earth, using his enemies as his footstool. He's the one that's the, that's the greatest. He's the glorious and wondrous God. 
He has been ascribed all glory and majesty and power and dominion. His rule and authority should bring worship and awe. We should worship the living God, not be respectful of persons. We must bow down to his will, to his plan and to his purposes. See, there's that wonderful Psalm 24, the, 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 the ascension psalm. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. The world and all that dwell therein, for it's founded upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Our God has ascended. The, 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 that psalm then finally goes on to say, Lift up your heads, all you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord is mighty. Mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, all you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Jesus is our King of glory. He has ascended. He lived a life that we could never live. A sinless life. A pure life. A holy life. Chose to come to die for us. To love us. Not looking at our appearance, not looking at our, our sin, but he loved us despite ourselves. And now he has ascended to glory. He never left his glory. We know him as the God-man. But he came to serve us. So in the presence of Jesus our King, we must show true fear, true reverence, true awe. Not be. Not before man, but before God. How do we live before God every day? When we walk out to the streets, when we go to work, this is before the king that's exalted. We must walk with our heads high, yes. But in order, we are nothing but if not for, for Jesus, who has ascended, who has done and cleansed us and washed us clean and, and made us holy, made us acceptable. Not because of how we look, but because he's cleansed our hearts. Because he's done a transforming work in us. Because he's renewed our minds. Because he's set us apart for his good and perfect purposes. For his promises are yea, they are amen. That you find promises of God in Jesus alone. He has done it all. He is the most glorious, most majestic, most powerful, abounding in all riches. All-knowing, omniscient, everlasting King. See, when our attention is on Christ, we really cannot place someone above someone else. We would not treat someone more favourable than another. How do we treat the youth? How do we engage them in conversation? Are we eager just to talk to our friends after service? Or are we looking for someone that we can talk to and, and engage and share about what we've talked about or, or just see how they're doing. Someone else that you don't normally speak to, right? How are you caring for the elderly? For those who have learning disabilities, do we treat them dis- differently than others? See, partiality is a sin. That's what James goes on to say. And we'll look at that next time. But God is no respecter of persons. 
We may think that it was just in new, the New Testament that, that mentions this, but in the Old Testament also, the Bible's true. He, he said to Moses in Exodus 33, 19, and Moses had asked God to show him his glory. He said, show me your face, I want to see you. And he said, I will, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and, it will be, and will show mercy on whom I show mercy. He decides who he shows mercy on. He decides who he's gracious to. He is a sovereign God. He does as he pleases. He, ha- he does no and shows no partiality. Why? Because his decisions are based on his perfect will. We can't miss those six different wills. His will, will, will and goodness, will to proclaim his name, will to show his graciousness, will to show his mercy. It's all about God's will. See, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 10, 14 to 17, it says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose your offspring after them. You above all peoples, you are, his, you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and the mighty and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. God says he sets his eyes, his love on his people. He chose them from among many nations. Question is, was God partial in his choice? Is God partial in his choice of his people? He set for them a way of living, commands and rules, ceremonies, priests, to preside over them, to set them apart from other nations. You would think that God is showing partiality in, in, in the way he chooses his people, right? Yet in verse 17, he assures them of God's impartiality. He says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty and the awesome God who is not partial, is not respect of persons and takes no bribes. No, God is not partial. In fact, God shows his impartiality in his choice of his people in the Old and New Testament. God choosing a particular group of people does not make him partial. If we think about this example, right? I played football, I've played football all my life. But when we were younger, we used, there, used, there used to be a way we'd choose who would come onto the team. You'd have two captains. And each captain, you, you would get the players to, to line up in a line. And the two captains would choose one after the other. Now, when you've played with people for long enough, you know who has the skills, who is not so good, right? And you choose them one after the other based on their characteristics, their skill and what they can bring to your team, right? See, the captain's choice is based on their ability and their confidence. See, when God chooses the people in the Old Testament, when he chooses his people, the church, it's not based on anything that they have to offer. It's not about the skill. It's not about our talent. It's not about the intellect. It's, it's, truly, it's not about how much we can worship him. It's not about our speech. In the case of Moses, it's not about because it's David, because he can worship him. It's, those are not the reasons why God chose those people. 
It's not about our good behaviour. Noah, he let God down. He beforehand, he was a righteous man. Then he let God, he was always a sinner, right? It's not about those things that are on the outside. It's not about our ability or even our knowledge about God. When God chooses a particular people, whether the Israelites or us, the bride, the church, as Pastor was saying last week, he chooses us not based on what we have done or are doing or will do. He, chooses, he doesn't choose a person whether we're good or whether we're bad. God does not foresee and say, okay, I'm going to choose this person because they're going to, they're going to do this certain act, act that will show that they love me. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't base it based on our credentials, right? God's choice is perfect because it's coming from his sovereign will. His sovereign goodness. He's merciful to who he's merciful to, gracious to who he's mer- gracious to. The people that God chooses are actually when we look at it in history, tend to be the, the poorest. When we look at the early Christians, we, we see that there was nothing noble about them. That's what it goes on to say, right? See, the poor here are those who are... If we go back to verse 5, he says, Listen, my brothers, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom. That's verse 5 of, of James chapter 2. See, the poor here are not just those who are poor in spirit. This is those who are actually poor. Those who are literally poor. Not to say that God doesn't choose the rich or those who are, are well off. But God comes for the weak of the world. Right? God comes to save the poor. We're reminded that even the words of Jesus that says that it's difficult for a rich man to go through, to, go, to get into the kingdom of God. It'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, right? My point is that God is not a respectable person. He does not consider someone's wealth as a means to save them at all. See, at the foot of the cross, we find a leveling ground. That's what James says in chapter 1. The, the poor man is exalted because he finds faith in Jesus. The rich man is humbled because he realises that his wealth can't save him. At the feet of the cross, Jesus has died for the rich and the poor. Has died for us, the people that he's chosen. It's a place where we find a leveller that nothing in us, nothing of us can come to God. Except him dying on the cross, coming for us, coming to the earth to die for us and resurrect again to ascend to glory. See, 1 Corinthians 1.26 says this. Not many, he says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from above, wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let no one boast but boast in the Lord boast in the Lord see we can't be partial we can't boast in ourselves we can't boast in other people 
truly we boast in Jesus. He's our redeemer. He's the wisdom from above. He's descended and then ascended. He's come to be with us, come to visit us, come to share his life with us, come to show us the way, come to show us the truth, to to witness to us the good news, the good news that he loves us dearly and is preparing a place for us. That's who we worship. That's who we're in awe of. That's who we respect. That's who we come before and humble ourselves. Truly him and truly him alone. See, Peter, when, when Cornelius came towards him, after realising that actually it's only what God calls, God calls clean is clean, right? The things that he thought were unclean, God called clean. And what he was referring to was that now the Gentiles, right? He just thought that God came for the Jews. He was a respectable person. And then when he saw Cornelius, he said this, and Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Acts 10.34 But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. The fear of the living God is the beginning of wisdom. To be in awe of him, to dwell in his presence, to revere him, to respect him. To love him dearly, not be respecters of people, not show partiality to others, not distinguish between people. See, if you're not trusting Jesus today, the message for us, the message for you is that you can only understand who Jesus is by coming and humbling yourself, not be a respecter of people. Then you need to understand what Jesus has done for you. You need to understand what he has done for you and who you are, who you were. Sin stained, not worthy, nothing beautiful about us. But Jesus came to love us, to care for us, to show he has something much more worthy for us. That we do not need to continue in our ways of sinning and continue to die, die. We wouldn't be part of of that, that first death. He came so that you can have life, life fully, to know the living God. That is what is to have life, to know him fully, to dwell in his presence, to come to know the living God, to be assured that you are going to live with him, to spend time in his presence, not have to worry that what is my purpose here on earth? Your purpose is to worship God. Your, pur- is, your, your purpose is to know the living God. Your purpose is to trust in Him, to have Him as your Lord and Saviour. Your purpose is to come and say, Here I am, I am woeful, I am a sinner. Accept me, forgive me, cleanse me of my sins. Save me, Lord. If you're a believer here today, then you can't hold faith and partiality. You must only be a respecter only of our Lord who has, been, who has ascended, who has gone, who's ransomed many men, many women to glory. That's what the Bible says. He has ransomed sons of God to glory. Do not be respecter of men. Do not show partiality. Trust in the Lord. Make him the Lord of your life. Show him that you love him and you care for him. You respect him, you love him and you fear him. Not a fear that, oh, 
What's going to happen tomorrow? God, the fear that you've shown total surrender to his will and his plans and his purposes to prepare him as the most glorious, most gracious, most wondrous God. Amen.